Welcome to the Bit by Bit podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I am the narrator of this fun little podcast. Now, this podcast is a labor of love and was created to help share literary works from smaller authors. Each week, we're going to read a portion of a fiction book until we get all the way through an entire book. So we're going to break it down week by week into separate episodes. But some books may take a week. Some books may take longer in order for me to tell the whole story. But all of the books that we're featuring on the show will be available for purchase on Amazon and other platforms. This podcast has three goals. One, share works of fiction that don't get mainstream media attention by authors that are not well known. Two, entertain those listeners who want a little spice in their life. And three, provide a free platform for people who are too cheap or too lazy to go out and buy the actual book. Don't worry, we don't judge. This is basically me in a nutshell, so I can't complain about that whatsoever. Disclaimer though. Some of our stories feature mature subjects, violence, profanity, or topics of a sexual nature. Listener discretion is definitely advised because this podcast is rated R. Let's get into today's episode. This week, we're featuring my very first book of fiction published called Returning to Snohomish. Here we go. Dedication. This book is dedicated to those who have lived in and around the little town of Snohomish, Washington. It is for all of the students who walk the halls of Snohomish High School and the parents and teachers who put up with us. This work is an homage to the people, the places, and the moments of our simpler childhood. May they live on in our memories forever. Without all of those special memories, this book would not have been possible. About Snohomish. Snohomish is a small city that lies about 40 minutes northeast of Seattle. Surrounded by mountain ranges, lakes, and evergreen trees, the land is fertile from the silt deposited by local rivers and tributaries. The town, founded in 1859, was originally called Caddyville after one of its pioneer settlers, E.F. Caddy, but was renamed Snohomish in 1871. With a strong name from a dominant Native American tribe, the town sits on a river that winds through and is best known for its fishing, agriculture, and dairy farms. Now boasting over 10,000 residents, Snohomish is proud to be listed on the National Register of Historic Places. For this reason, it is well known for its numerous antique shops that line First Street in the center of town. The residents, a mix of locals that have grown up there for generations and implants from all over the country, are fiercely proud of the little town and all it has to offer. Through the years, Snohomish has changed much as local businesses created a boom in both construction and population. Many consider the town a prime example of successful plans to reinvigorate a business district while preserving historic charm. If you happen to pass through this northwest gem of a city, be sure to enjoy the antique shops, the great food, and the hundreds of well-preserved historic homes and businesses. Snohomish is the town I grew up in, the town where I experienced my first love, my first kiss, and my first heartache. It was from there that I left for college, attended law school, and launched my careers, both legal and literary. It is also from this locale that I drew inspiration for characters from the dozens of people I grew up with. These people are down-to-earth, some wholesome, some gritty, some educated, some driven, some athletic, some unpleasant, some friendly, some exceptional, and some downright mean. Despite their strengths and weaknesses, all of these people inspired me to create interesting characters, share my stories, and dare to reach for everything that I've ever dreamed of. Chapter 1. Prologue. 
He was heartbroken, and it showed in every particle of his being. It changed him, the way he acted, the way he felt, and even the way he looked. He had been shaped by the weight of his love. The pain of it sat like a massive and heavy chain around his neck. He had thought long and hard about what to do. She had occupied so much of his time, thoughts, and life. Having her gone was like losing a limb. There had to be a way to move on from her, and he was determined to find it. Fast. Excerpt from The Long Road Home by Julia Swan. There was a crowd gathered around the front of the school, ready for the afternoon's long-waited event. It was a farming community, so the hint of hay-scented air blew in from the valley as local farms mowed their fields in anticipation of the upcoming winter season. It was hot, much hotter than Washington normally got in June, without a single breeze to cool the normally moderate temperature. The sky was the color of a robin's egg, and unlike the usual early summer weather, there was not a cloud in sight. In the distance, farmland was ribboned with sprouting crops that separated the landscape into a patchwork of agricultural fields and dairy farms. The hills surrounding the area were velvety green, a shade of emerald that was distinctive in the Pacific Northwest. Everywhere, the first offshoots of spring were fading fast and the growing season was in full swing. Stalks of corn were starting to shoot up pinkish gold to signify that fall was coming. Spinach and strawberries were sprouting flowers, as well as pumpkins, onions, peas, potatoes, and cucumbers. Tractors dotted the fields, and periodic streams of water shot from massive sprinklers, keeping everything cool. At the high school, the crowds were milling, as heat caused them to shift uncomfortably. Despite the unseasonal heat, the event drew people from all over the state, as well as the country. Snohomish did not get many days like this, but when it did, the people came out in full force. Umbrellas were shoved to the back of closets, and pale extremities nearly blinded those who had not seen them since the summer before. All around, people dug out grimy sunglasses and dusty hats so that they would not miss one single second of the perfection that was a warm summer day in the Pacific Northwest. Here, in the shadow of Snohomish Senior High School, the air was heavy with heat and smelled slightly of mold. As soon as he had gotten out of his late model sedan, Kevin Luther regretted wearing his thick wool suit. His only other presentable suit was currently at the cleaners, and his wife had forgotten to pick it up despite numerous reminders. Drawing his attention back to the present, he decided it was time to get the day's events started. A gold Snohomish Panther centennial pin winked from the lapel of his navy jacket. Sweat trickled down his temple and dropped onto his carefully penned index cards. He wasn't the only one suffering, though. The ceremony was being held outside in the front of the school, but there was no breeze, so the crowd was beginning to feel the heat of midday. Damp armpits and sticky clothing seemed to be the most common reaction to the unseasonably warm weather. The doors were open, showing the original Building A with its brick exterior and gleaming hallways. Luther had seen to it that the janitorial staff had spent a good portion of their Friday afternoon readying the area for the anticipated Saturday visitors. The exposed halls now smelled like lemon, wax, and pine saw. Staff and community members stood in the shade and fanned themselves with flyers that commemorated the day's special event. No one seemed to be aware of the amount of work that had gone into the day's events, but then again, Luther prided himself on making things appear effortless. A large black fly buzzed lazily around, and the principal waved it away with a big square hand. His pink scalp was glistening through the spikes of his short, white military haircut. But most, by most people's standards, he was an intimidating-looking man. A football player in his younger years, he still had the muscular frame of a college linebacker. He liked to think he cut an imposing figure when it came to students and parents. 
the thousands of young high schoolers who had been forced to stand in front of him for some infraction or another could personally attest to that fact. Faces red with sun exposure looked up at him expectantly. Clearing his throat, Principal Luther started the proceedings with a short speech. Greetings, students, parents, and community members, he began. Just a few little tidbits before we get started. I bet most of you did not know it, but before SHS opened, it was a courthouse with a small jail under the main building. He paused for effect. That is where we put the misbehaving students today. There were a few laughs from the crowd. Luther was not known for a sense of humor, but he was happy he could bring out a few chuckles from the serious crowd in front of him. He continued, In all seriousness, we have a pretty amazing occasion to celebrate this year. As you all probably know, this is the 100-year anniversary of Snohomish High School. This amazing school first opened in 1894. That is 100 years of excellence, 100 years of outstanding students, and 100 years of superb staffing. Not a lot of schools can claim such an illustrious history. There was a brief but loud applause and a few cheers rose from the crowd. There was absolutely no way that anyone in the crowd was unaware of that little fact. There were huge 100-year banners all around the school, courtesy of the Snohomish High School Art Department. A black panther the size of an elephant loomed down from at least a dozen banners placed at strategic spots around town as well. Luther looked up and scanned the crowd. Meeting the eyes of as many as he could, he flipped to his next index card with a smile. Considering how long 100 years is and the long path we have traversed to get here, we think it is a pretty special occasion. We are not the only school in the area, but we believe we are the best one because our staff, our students, our alumni, our high standards of education, and our beloved traditions. Again, there was a loud cheer and a few catcalls. Here at SHS, we love our school, and I am proud to have been the principal for the last decade. Over the course of the last hundred years, these hallowed halls have seen students that have gone on to become teachers, professional athletes, engineers, actors, writers, professors, lawyers, judges, and doctors. We know the next 100 years will be just as successful as the last, and we ask you to join us on this momentous occasion in celebrating Snohomish High School. Taking a brief pause, the principal wiped the sweat from his forehead with a white cotton handkerchief. Aware of the time and wanting to keep the ceremony on a precise timetable, he wrapped up his speech. To honor this auspicious occasion, we will be dropping three time capsules. One capsule will be opened in 20 years, one will be opened in 50, and one will be opened in 100 years. We invite anyone in the community who would like to participate to drop in a little memento from their time here at Snohomish High School. We will open the first of these wonderful little time capsules in 20 years. So we expect you all to join us again then. Thank you again for coming. Punch and cookies are provided on the table to your left. To your right, you will find a table with pictures from the last 100 years. Please enjoy. When he was done, no one seemed to know what to do. Everything was unnaturally quiet until gradually the sounds of the local neighborhood obtruded and singled themselves out one by one. Someone cleared their throat and a horn honked a few yards away on Avenue D as traffic moved by at a crawl. A small child screamed through the window of a passing minivan and a bird launched into a loud chirping in a nearby tree. Suddenly, as if propelled by some unseen forces, everyone began talking at once. At that point, a few staff members moved through the open doors of the school and the crowd moved forward as well. A group of recent graduates that still lived in the area filtered in. A few were dressed in nice clothing, but the majority were wearing casual summer gear. Arms bulged in sleeveless shirts, tanned legs gleamed with lotion and short shorts, and a few letterman's jackets dotted the crowds. One rowdy youth clapped his friend on the back and used the time as an opportunity to catch up. A dark-haired young man stepped forward 
to the table that held three large time capsules. The metal canisters were made of stainless steel and measured two feet by five feet each. Studying the current contents, he blew out a deep breath and pushed a hand into his pocket. Feeling the small velvet box, he turned it around in his palm and debated his next move. Around him, the crowd buzzed with excitement and other people stepped forward with purpose. Some students placed pictures in the capsule from their time at SHS. Others put graduation flyers, cards, jewelry, newspaper clippings, a bottle of perfume, and a letter. One put a tightly folded t-shirt from one of the basketball coaches that had passed away from cancer. Another student stepped forward with a large stuffed panther and was turned away by a frowning staff member. The one stipulation for placing items into the time capsule was that the item had to be less than half a pound and no larger than a deck of cards. Peter looked at his watch before he moved forward towards one of the time capsules. There were dark circles under his eyes and he looked exhausted. It was almost three and he had to get back to the store. Hey Pete, I haven't seen you in a while, a good-looking blonde male stepped slapped him on the back as he dropped a small box into the time capsule. The box was taped closed and bore the initials PJD in white lettering. He smiled grimly. Hi, Andrew, he managed, but didn't feel much like chatting. He hoped his expression conveyed his message loud and clear. He didn't want to have to be rude. Andrew smiled broadly in return and dropped a letter of college admission into the canister. He smelled slightly of alcohol. His voice and expression were curious. What are you putting in the capsule? Peter had hoped not to have to answer a bunch of questions. Just my class ring, he replied, putting his hands in his pockets and backing away from the table. Luckily, his friend had already lost focus. Andrew Riley had always been a bit empty-headed, and now his attention was wandering in 50 different directions. He yelled out to someone across the room and lifted a hand to wave wildly at someone else in the opposite direction. He had about as much focus as a small child at a toy store. Just when Peter thought he would be able to sneak away, Andrew clapped him on the shoulder roughly. As a former member of the football team, he wasn't particularly intelligent, but he seemed to have a good heart. He had also been known for his friendly roughhousing that usually included lots of punching shoulders, chests, and backs. Most of the time, his friends took it good-naturedly, but Peter had always hated Andrew's physical interactions. Luckily, they were usually short-lived and ended when Andrew's attention was drawn to something else that seemed more interesting. Wow, aren't those expensive, Andrew asked, making it clear that he did not really care about the answer when he immediately turned and started scanning the room for any signs of an attractive female while he spoke. Peter shrugged and grunted. Andrew didn't wait for an answer. I thought there were going to be some cute girls here, he lamented, looking disappointed at the offerings. Maybe if you head out into the courtyard, Peter suggested. Andrew sniggered and winked. Peter could tell where his thoughts were heading. I saw this really hot meal from the parking lot and thought for sure she would be in here, but it looks like only the ugly ones actually came in. His immaturity was another thing that had always bugged his friends and repelled girls. It was obvious to Peter why he didn't have a girlfriend. That's always a bummer, he said without emotion. This conversation had been going on longer than Peter had thought possible. Just when he thought things couldn't get any worse, Andrew looked back at him, his expression sympathetic. Any word from your girl? Peter frowned and shrugged. Nope. He didn't offer anything further and hoped his classmate would not pry. Andrew was one of the biggest gossips in town, and he had no intention of sharing his personal business with half of Snohomish. Before Andrew could ask more questions, he moved away from the table and toward the door. Hey, I gotta head out. Tell your parents I said hi. Andrew smacked him noisily on the back once more. Will do, bro. Will do. Noticing a group of his friends in letterman's jackets, the blonde threw his hands up in greeting and loudly welcomed the rest of his friends. The remaining crowd dropped their items into the time capsule and moved toward the back snack table to chat. 
Peter silently made his way out of the building, feeling relieved he had accomplished what he had set out to do. As he made his way back to the store, he felt physically drained, like he had run a marathon. For the past few months, he hadn't felt like himself, nor could he shake the feeling like there was a heavy weight draped around his neck. What he wanted was sleep. Lots and lots of sleep, but that wasn't an option at the moment. The only thing he could do was to keep grinding away and pretend like nothing had happened. She wasn't coming back, and she had made that abundantly clear. There was nothing left to do. He turned back to the empty shelves and got back to work. Chapter 1 The town was filled with pale imitations of her and littered with the dusty shadows of those who could not escape their mediocrity despite their best efforts. Those that stayed here in this sleepy town were hunkered down in dead-end jobs with dead-end lives. Their eyes glazed over like they were already gone. Excerpt from The Long Road Home by Julia Swan Present It was early, a little after five o'clock in the morning. The skies were dark now, but the first signs of dawn were slowly moving toward the edges of the horizon in splashes of pale pink and blue. I lifted my head and inhaled a deep breath of Snohomish air, filling my nostrils with the smell of river, blackberry bushes, and damp earth. As I made my way onto the front porch of my parents' house, I pulled the front door quietly closed behind me and turned towards the driveway to head out for an early morning run. My sneakers felt tighter than usual, probably because I hadn't worn them in weeks. I paused and tried loosening the laces a bit. As I knelt, I started to think about my bed upstairs on the second floor, warm, soft, and comfortable. My motivation to run had been sadly lacking in the last couple of months, so I wasn't sure exactly why. Deep down inside, I knew the real reason, but I was determined to work through it and find a resolution to my current lack of enthusiasm for the things I had once felt so motivated to do. Yawning loudly, I stretched out my calves for a few moments as I planned my route. Our house, the same one I had grown up in, sat on a corner lot with a front and side yard covering half of one city block in either direction. Most of the houses in this area were historic, with wide front porches, expansive flower beds, and small wooden placards next to the front door detailing the year the house was built, along with the name of the family who had built it. Some of the first families to settle in the area had built beautiful Victorian homes with lots of gingerbread lattice, lovely paint colors, and decorative wooden details. Many of these houses still stood today and were open to the public a few times a year when the town allowed organized tours of historic homes. As many of the other homes on this street, my parents had gardens surrounding the house filled with fruit trees and seasonally blooming plants. Normally, the flower beds were neat and orderly as rows of flowers covered one entire side of our property. It was September and everything was in the final bloom of fall. As another Washington summer was coming to a close, precise rows of plants were swaying gently in a slight morning breeze. My mom had spent hours handpicking and planting the individual bulbs and organizing the plants into beautiful designs she had found in Victorian gardening books. Outside of the gardens were lines of dwarf fruit trees in apple, peach, plum, pear, and cherry. Each tree had been carefully selected, painstakingly planted, and nurtured by hand daily as if they were small children. When the gardens were flowering, the profusion of petals was something to see. Each row of flowers transitioned from whites and creams to yellows, blues, reds, and ended in the far reaches of the yard with the deepest purple flowers. Normally, I would have taken my time to inhale the fragrances and admire the orderly rows. However, in the first morning light, I could see that something was terribly wrong. What had once been a beautiful sampling of delicate petals and green stems was now a mass of dirt and ground-up flowers. I remembered trying to convince my mom to put a fence around the property after the house had been toilet papered a few years back. 
She resisted strenuously and insisted she did not need a fence. This is Snohomish, she argued. Our neighbors are family. Nothing bad happens here. I wanted to believe her, but in my heart I knew it was only a matter of time before something like this happened. According to the local paper, a group of kids had taken to Snohomish neighborhoods in the middle of the night or early in the morning when residents slept. When residents woke, they found a trail of damage, vandalism, and theft. Evidently, our house had provided too much temptation and a couple of bad teens had decided to destroy the ample gardens. The guilty parties had not left the property yet, and the sound of my audible gasp alerted them to exit the yard with all possible haste. I heard a low whistle and a few sharp snorts of laughter before I saw two guilty-looking teens riding away in beat-up bikes. As I rounded a corner and approached the area where the teens had been standing, I could see cigarette butts, food, wrappers, and sunflower seeds. A shovel that had been resting neatly on a peg now set discarded next to the trampled rows of flowers. The shed door was leaning open and hanging on its hinges haphazardly. They had nearly ripped the door off its frame in their haste. Various other gardening tools were laying around the shed, some broken and some simply discarded. Everything that had once sat in organized order was now scattered everywhere. I sighed heavily and dreaded the moment that my mom and dad would discover this chaos. A lock on the tool shed was another suggestion that had fallen by the wayside with my parents. They seemed to think that the neighborhood was just as safe as it had been when they first moved here in 1986. Like many around us, they still left the back door of our house unlocked most of the time. It was ironic that my parents had to pay the price for being trusting of the other residents in our neighborhood. They were upstanding members of the community. They volunteered at all the high school events and took part in most community fundraisers. They spent every spare dime they had helping out local youth organizations and after-school programs. It was highly likely they had interacted with one or more of the boys who had destroyed their yard at some point in the last year or two. It wasn't as if anyone deserved to have their property vandalized, but my parents definitely did not deserve this sort of heartbreaking destruction. The two guilty teens paused a few yards from the alley behind our house. They were in no hurry to flee the scene with any sort of speed. Clearly, they considered the slightly overweight middle-aged woman in the driveway as no threat. I hadn't expected them to stop and surrender themselves, but I also had not expected such a blatant disregard for the property of others. Without thinking, I started towards them. I got to the end of the alley where they had paused. One threw a soda can into a nearby yard, spitting out a glob of brown chewing tobacco, while the other one gave me the finger. At first, the teens didn't pay any attention to me as they stood laughing and knocking the mud off their shoes. However, once they heard me trudging toward them, they immediately pedaled off towards the alley next to our house. I managed to take a few pictures of the group with my cell phone before they moved out of range. Although it was light enough to take pictures, they were blurry, and I was not sure how much help they would actually be. My head was buzzing as I watched the teens pedal down the alley and toward town. Without thinking, I sprinted after them. Propelled by my righteous indignation and a little bit of curiosity, I followed the teens as they headed towards downtown Snohomish and the river. Where exactly were these little punks going? I was keeping a good pace, but even so, the riders were getting further and further ahead of me. I swept past a peeling white ranch house with a for sale sign in the dead center of an overgrown lawn. A different teen, hauling a wagon of papers, tossed one to the house on my left. Sanity slowly began to return as I got closer to First Street. Sweat was starting to beat around my hairline, and I wondered what in the hell I'd been thinking. I'd intended to go for a run, and this was not what I had in mind. I slowed down to a normal jog. What was I going to do if I actually caught these little criminals? Make a citizen's arrest? 
Clearly, my caffeine-deprived brain was not functioning in a normal way at such an early hour in the morning. I ducked under another set of low bushes and followed the hooligans from a distance as they disappeared behind a familiar two-story shop in downtown Snohomish. As I slowed to a walk, I could see the small store looking much the same as it had when I had grown up here. The front window ran the entire length of the storefront and was festively painted with fall decorations. Bundled cornstalks and a few hay bales were propped against one of the store's shelves. A miniature scarecrow winked from the top of one of the aisles. I remembered helping put up similar decorations nearly 20 years ago. Not much had changed all these years later. Multicolored leaves danced in a gust of wind. Pumpkins grinned with gap-toothed smiles. Another scarecrow was propped up in a corner with, with a jaunty straw hat sitting on his head. There were pyramids of fruit lining the front windows, and a man was stacking another one directly in front of me. He was tall, with a head of thick, dark hair that was liberally peppered with gray. His back was wide, and I could see muscles flexing beneath a well-worn gray t-shirt. He was as familiar as a family member, wearing his Levi's and distinctive red Converse sneakers. I smiled, remembering the one person I knew that used to wear red Converse religiously. These sneakers, both comfortable and effortlessly stylish, said a person was hip without trying. A warm, comfortable feeling pooled in my stomach for a split second before being replaced by something infinitely more uncomfortable. There was history here, and stories that I had not dared dredge up for many years. The man turned, sensing my presence behind him, and my stomach lurched. I had not expected to see Peter Daughtry standing before me, looking very different than he had 20 years ago. There was a spark of recognition in his deep blue eyes as they lit on me, narrowed, and studied my face. Once his face had been almost as familiar to me as my own. Once there had been a very different sort of relationship between us. I shifted in my place and squinted, refusing to let anything show in my face. Something else landed there behind his eyes. Something that said he knew things about me that no one else could. Can I help you? he asked. His voice was much deeper than it had been all those years ago. For a moment, I debated turning and heading back in the direction I came from with all possible haste. Fortunately, rational thought took over and I answered with a slight squeak in my voice. Yeah, I'm looking for a couple of kids on bikes that just rode through here. They trashed my parents' yard, I told them breathlessly, glancing back as the perpetrators rode down the road behind us toward town. I could hear them screeching with laughter and cursing at me as they faded into the distance. He looked completely calm in the face of my crisis. Those kids, he asked, casually pointing his thumb in their direction. I shook my head. I tried to catch them, but they obviously have bikes, I said, immediately realizing how ridiculous I sounded. Good luck with that, he told me dismissively, continuing to stack the oranges in front of him. Those two have been wreaking havoc all over this town for the last year. As if moving with a will of their own, my feet carried me closer to the stack of oranges. I felt a sudden urge to pull one from the bottom and topple his neat stack. I was close enough to smell his cologne. He turned around and studied me once more. The kids were long gone now. Should I call the police, I asked him, wishing he would show a bit more urgency or at least familiarity. He shrugged and didn't reply. Did he actually want me to believe he didn't know who I was? Vanity made me wish I had worn something nicer than yoga pants and a baggy sweatshirt on this fruitless journey. Maybe he wasn't paying attention to me because I looked nothing like I had all those years ago. My hair was pulled back into a ponytail and I had not bothered with makeup. I caught sight of myself in the window and smoothed my hair self-consciously, trying to settle the flyaways that were always curling at the sides. There was no way he didn't know who I was, even after all these years. They did a lot of damage to my parents' yard, I persisted. There's no way I'm letting these little brats get off that easily. He shook his head. 
They will deny it, just like they always do. He seemed to know these kids personally, or at least have experienced their behavior before. He kept stacking the fruit as if my troubles were not his concern. As much as I wanted to ignore the elephant standing in the room, I could not. So this is still your family's store? I asked. He turned and studied me for a moment without a single spark of recognition. Yep. His face was blank and I still couldn't tell whether he remembered me or not. Doubt crept into my mind. Twenty years was a long time and in all fairness, I did look different. My face didn't have the same chubby look of a teen. Gone was the long platinum blonde hair of my youth that I used to wear around my shoulders. It was dark now and wavy because I was too lazy to straighten it anymore. I had also grown out of the tube tops, overalls, and chunky flip-flops that had been so popular all those years ago. A younger man with a clean-shaven face pushed open the front door. He looked exactly like a guy we both went to school with, but I could not remember his name. He gave us a look of complete boredom. I'm here, boss man. Do you want the crates of the bananas put out first or the flowers? Peter turned to his employee. Bananas first, Kevin. Give me a couple minutes and I'll come help you organize. He looked back at me. I noted the little crinkles around the corners of his eyes and the way his lips looked the same. He wore a well-trimmed beard now that covered his sculpted cheeks. It made him look even more handsome. Perhaps he really didn't know who I was. I swallowed hard, prepared to admit defeat. I was going to give him a few more seconds and then head back home. Maybe the police would be more helpful. With a deep sigh, he looked up at my face and then away. It seemed like he was participating in an inner battle not to remember me. Exactly how much damage did they do, he asked, setting down the basket he was using. He still wouldn't meet my eyes. Success. I took a deep breath to calm my nerves. They completely destroyed our front yard and most of the back. My mom spends hundreds of hours on those flower beds each spring. You know that. Despite the tone of my voice, he still didn't react. Why pretend? There was no way he could forget me and all that we had done together. My temper began to flare. Those little turds tore up a few thousand dollars worth of flowers. Have a little compassion, Peter. You know how much my mom loves those. His head jerked up and his eyes flashed. Part of me was relieved that he was showing some sort of reaction, but part of me was annoyed. He looked mad that he was being forced to remember me, to relive the events of 20 years ago. Then he surprised me. Show me, he directed, after telling Kevin he would be back in a few minutes. I turned, and he followed me back to my parents' house through the hedge and along the alley behind our house. We didn't speak as we walked. It was cold, but the current temperature had very little to do with the frigid morning temperature and more to do with the years and memories between us. This wasn't exactly the sort of homecoming I had imagined. Not that I had ever imagined a homecoming. Peter cursed when we came upon the carnage that was my parents' yard. The sun was up now, shining over the wet droplets of water left by the sprinklers. The whole front was a mess of trampled flowers and muddy compost. Mom hasn't seen it yet, but she is going to freak out, I told him unnecessarily. After all these years, he undoubtedly knew my mom almost as well as I did. He scratched his beard. I know who did this. I guess I could go have a chat with the police department. He wouldn't even look at me. There was something about his calm demeanor that was driving me crazy. He had always been this way, cool as a cucumber, even in the most stressful of situations. My heart was beating a million miles an hour, partly from adrenaline and partly from the knowledge that my childhood boyfriend was unexpectedly standing in front of me once more. That would be nice, I grumbled, kicking at one of the flower stalks from some late-blooming flowers that had been upended. I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted from Peter, but this stoic, cold attitude was not it. He acted like he didn't even know me. As if we had not known each other since the sixth grade and dated for three years. As if on cue, my mom decided to pop her head outside at that exact moment. 
Her cheerful voice broke through my nervous anxiety. Well, hello, if it isn't Peter Daughtry. How's your mother doing? Her voice had a certain nasal twang that sounded part Canadian and part Minnesota. She stood on the front porch dressed in an old robe with a cup of coffee in each hand. Clearly, she had not yet noticed the complete ruin that was her front yard. Her face was beaming, and I could tell instantly that she thought there was hope for a reconciliation between us. She had always loved Peter, and us breaking up was one of the greatest tragedies she had ever witnessed. Her words, not mine. I held my breath and glanced in Peter's direction. Peter looked from her to me, waiting for her to notice her beloved flowers. She's good, Mrs. Swan. You should come say hi. She comes into the store on Tuesdays now to help out. Somehow I was sure that my mom already knew this. We stood and waited for it, both of us bracing ourselves for the reaction we knew would come. My mother had never been the quickest or the most observant. It was no surprise that it took a full minute for her to notice the carnage that was her flower beds. When she did, we both flinched as she shouted, What in God's name has happened to my flowers? Her voice was so loud and high-pitched that it could have shattered glass. In her shock, she dropped the two coffee cups she had been holding and stood with her mouth open. The mugs exploded and hot coffee sloshed around her. Still, she stood perfectly still, tears welling up in her eyes. Peter and I rushed forward, moving her out of the coffee puddle she was standing in. She seemed not to notice the steaming liquid splashed all around her. I put a soothing arm around her shoulders. It was some kids from town, Mom. She flung my arm away angrily. She screeched, pulling away from me. I noticed she'd allowed Peter to hold her arm still as if to stabilize her. Patrick, call the police! Peter helped her back into the house, making soothing noises as he assured her the police would help. There was nothing else I could do but pick up the pieces of the broken mugs. I found an empty plastic flower pot and set the ceramic pieces inside. Sighing, I looked around to find some old towels to mop up the coffee. I could hear my mom alternately sobbing and yelling in the other room. So much for a relaxing trip home. The situation had set her off in a way I had never seen before. I think we had both underestimated my mom. She was the sort of woman that never lost her temper, the kind of mom that was calm in the face of almost every childhood injury or situation. I had expected anger, but she was ready for some sort of extreme battle. Fuming, she was holding a steel meat tenderizer in one hand and her cell phone in the other. Periodically, she waved the kitchen utensil as if she was going to hit someone. She still had curlers in her auburn hair, and one had come out. There was a streak of fine, limp hair falling down her neck. Her chest was heaving as she banged around the kitchen. It was a bit like seeing an old milk cow on an angry rampage. After mopping up as much of the coffee as I could with an old sweatshirt, I threw the damp item into the washing machine by the back door. Pushing open the swinging kitchen door, I found Peter sitting at the table with my dad. The coffee from earlier had been replaced with two large mugs and some homemade muffins, but no one was eating or drinking. No one dared. I gave Peter a look of sympathy. He shrugged, tracing a pattern on the red gingham tablecloth. It was the same oiled tablecloth that my mom had used when I was a kid. As delicately as possible, I set a hand on my mother's shoulder. Mom, Peter says he's going to go talk to the police. I think he has a pretty good idea of who the culprits are. The situation is under control now. We should probably let him get back to the store. My mom whirled on me, and for a second I thought she might hit me with a meat tenderizer. But then she saw Peter, and the look of fury was instantly replaced with concern. Oh yes, I'm sorry, dear, she apologized, pulling Peter up by one of his rather large arms. When had he gotten so muscular? Here, take a muffin. Thank you for your help, Peter. We'll talk later. She handed him a muffin and reached up to plant a kiss on his furry cheek. Was it just me, or was there some sort of secret collusion between Peter and my mom, just like old times? 
They had always been a team, united against me as if to do battle with my father and I, who always seemed to side together. I looked at Peter with a raised eyebrow and he shrugged. We walked out together and down the driveway in silence. He paused at the end of the alley behind our house. Your mom asked me to come to dinner tonight, he informed me, sliding his hands into his jean pockets. You know how demanding she can be. I hope you said no, I told him, staring out into the distance at the hint of the Snohomish River on the horizon. The town was awake and buzzing around us. The neighbors, a Swedish couple I did not recognize, climbed into their matching sport utility vehicles and drove off. The neighbor across the street grabbed his paper and waved. I waved back. There was silence. When I looked over again, Peter was walking back toward the bushes between our house and the alley. She makes amazing meatloaf. Of course I said yes, he called out before disappearing behind the hedge that led back toward his store. See you later, alligator. Chapter 2 Praise for Julia Swan. Her characters are rich and multidimensional. Her plot lines are riveting. We can't wait for the next installation. Los Angeles Times. A funny and heartwarming look at growing up in middle-class America. Abigail Martin, Writers Guild of America. This harkens back to all the wonderful teen movies of the 90s and 2000s. What an amazing way to write a novel, the New York Times. Julia Swan's coming-of-age novels are some of the best I have read in years. I laughed, I cried, and I found myself wanting more. Thank you, Julia, for having the courage to discuss life in ways we can all identify with. Adam Schroeder, New York Times bestselling author. Past. Spreading my hands out on the desk between us, I took a deep breath and looked at my agent, Melinda. Dressed in all black, she was leaning back in her chair and staring at me with a concerned look on her face. In contrast to her dark clothing, her office was spartan, pure white, with not even a dash of color. Against her black cashmere turtleneck, her skin was as white as snow. Are you sure everything's okay, Julia? Everything was definitely not okay. I had just spent the last year traveling from city to city promoting my books. I was exhausted both mentally and physically. Since my second novel had been released two years before, I had been unable to finish another one. The reason for this was a case of the worst writer's block I had ever experienced. The thought that it would never end terrified me. What if I couldn't finish another book? What if two was all I could produce? My mind was racing with the implications of what might happen, and worst-case scenarios haunted my dreams at night. I had few options. My contract specified I would be paid a total of $4 million, but only upon completion of three novels. It also dictated that if I did not finish my third novel by summer, I would forfeit all the money above my initial advance of 200000 Nearly $4 million was at stake, and I was desperate to finish one last book. The first two novels had been easy. I had finished each with a frenzy, getting them done in roughly three months apiece, both had come out to positive reviews and had landed on the bestsellers list. But when it came to my last novel in the series, I was completely stuck. Now, my inability to finish was giving me vicious headaches, insomnia, heart palpitations, and nausea. Now, Melinda had me here for a reason, to talk about the confrontation I had experienced with a woman in New York in a New York bookstore the previous week. Most of the time, I was able to pass through crowds of people without being recognized. I was not a celebrity by any stretch of the imagination, and I had always insisted I did not want a picture on my jacket covers. I felt like this was an effective tool to retain my privacy until a few days ago. Until that point, I was just another anonymous bookstore patron, getting out of the cold by glancing at historical fiction. I was ten pages into a promising distraction when a woman approached. "'Oh my goodness, it's Julia Swan!' she breathed with what initially looked like reverence. Without thinking, I assumed she was a fan of my work. Lulled into a false sense of confidence and comfort, I smiled and nodded. Hi there, are you a fan? 
I was prepared to offer her a signed copy of my book I happened to have in my bag when I saw the look on her pinched face. In response to my question, she smirked in an exaggerated fashion. Not exactly. I read your first two books and just wanted to see if the third novel was going to wrap things up in a less than horrific way. This woman had some nerve. I pulled back from her sharply and looked at her in disbelief. Excuse me? The sneer never once left her face. We heard you couldn't get the last book done. Some of my co-workers and I have bets going as to whether you will forfeit the remainder of your guarantee. How could some random stranger in a bookstore in New York know about my contract with my publisher? I gave her a strained smile and tried to think of a way I could gracefully back out of the store and run back to my hotel. Lying seemed like the best approach. Nope, you must be misinformed. I'm nearly done with the third installment, and it promises to be my best yet. Yeah, right, she snorted. You probably haven't even gotten past the first chapter. She was right, but there was no way I was confirming it. There was a crazy look in her eyes, like I was a spider she was about to squish with a chew or a newspaper. Nope, sorry to disappoint you. I smiled my fakest smile, eyes wide with half fear and half surprise at the sheer temerity of this woman. Despite my gradual movement towards the exit, the woman would not let go. I am guessing you've run through the advance, too, from the looks of your jacket. It was midwinter, and I had forgotten to pack a heavy coat. Instead of spending hundreds on new outerwear, I had dipped into a secondhand store and grabbed a down coat. It was an old L.L. Bean that had seen better days, but was still in decent shape. Clearly, this woman expected me to be wearing some sort of designer clothing with an expensive overcoat to match. Listen, I told her patiently, slowly backing away. It was nice meeting you, but I need to run. I have an appointment with my editor. How did you get on the bestsellers list anyway, she asked as I was backing away. She was throwing out personal zingers now, like it was some sort of official paid review. Your characters are one-dimensional, your plot line's non-existent, and your use of the English language is atrocious at best. How was I supposed to take that? I had worked too hard to get where I was, and I was not going to tolerate any more of this bullying. How dare she get so personal? My patience could only last for so long, and the gloves were off now. I took a step forward, preparing to give her a piece of my mind. First of all, no one's forcing you to read my books. And second, why don't you try writing your own book and see how far that takes you? It isn't easy. My defensive statements only seemed to inflame her further. Instead of backing off, the woman stepped closer. Are you threatening me? She screeched. Security! Hearing the commotion, a uniformed security guard stepped in our direction. Lady, you're nuts, I told her, holding my hands up and slowly backing towards the door. My attempts to gracefully retreat were too late. By now, the woman had worked herself into a lather. Help me! She screamed, dropping down onto the floor and acting as though I had hit her. Suddenly, there was a crowd of people around us. Before I knew what was happening, a security guard grabbed my arm and escorted me into one of the back rooms. The woman, a wicked and satisfied grin on her face, was helped up and offered assistance like she had been mugged. I could hear her describing an interaction between us that was better fiction than I could have ever made up in my books. Sighing deeply, I let the officer lead me to a separate holding area that was usually reserved for shoplifters. Calmly and without emotion, I directed the officer to the cameras, which had been pointed in the direction of our altercation. An hour later, after the police had reviewed the security footage, I was finally allowed to go home. Unfortunately for me, though, a newspaper reporter showed up to ask for a statement, and my false accuser was more than willing to oblige. It seemed she had no problem dramatically maligning my character with far too many adjectives. The next day, a small article appeared on page 12 of the paper suggesting that I had assaulted a woman in a bookstore. 
Best-selling author abuses one of her fans, the headline read. The article had been sure to say the events were alleged, but the damage was done. Now I was sitting in my agent Melinda's office like a child who had been sent to the principal. She shook her head as though she was deeply disappointed in me. I'm not sure what's going on in your head, Julia, but things are not going well for you at the moment. I glanced up and tried not to cry. I'd done nothing wrong and I was almost ready to give up. I leaned back in the chair and ran a shaky hand through my hair. I'm just tired. She gave me a look that said she was buying none of my excuses. Clearly, I was giving her more stress than I should have been. I need you to level with me, Julia. I have known my agent for almost five years, and I have never seen her look at me with this expression on her face or speak to me with this tone in her voice. Okay, I can do that. I tried for a confident smile, but it was wobbly as hell. Melinda looked at me doubtfully. She sighed deeply and shoveled some papers on her desk. The surface was cream-colored marble with gray veins. I was pretty sure she had a copy of my contract on hand, as well as the latest correspondence from my publisher. Doubleday is calling me almost every day. Do you think you can finish this book on time? I think I can, and I've been trying. You have to believe me. No one wants to finish as much as I do, I assured her. She glanced at the small paper calendar on her desk. You have six months and three days left. If you do not have a first draft done by February 17th, you will forfeit the remaining money on your contract. I didn't need to hear any of this. I already had a huge calendar in my apartment back home with the D-Day countdown. I'm sorry, Melinda. I'm trying, but I just can't seem to get rid of this writer's block. I haven't even been able to write in my diary, I complained. She gave me a patient smile. Have you considered going home for a few weeks? See your parents visit all the old spots that inspired you in the first place? I hadn't been home in over 20 years, not since college. If I was truthful, I could not see myself going now. Returning to Snohomish was the absolute last thing on my mind at the moment. Melinda looked at me sternly now. Gone was the understanding editor. In her place was the ball-busting agent that knew what she had to do to inspire completed work. I am done negotiating, pleading, and cajoling. This is not an option I'm giving you, Julia. I'm telling you that you will be taking a trip home. I already purchased your plane ticket. That was the last thing I wanted to hear at that exact moment. How could I possibly take a few weeks off when I had so much work to do? Instantly, I started running through lists of projects that needed to be done yesterday. Feebly, I tried to dissuade her from her last-ditch efforts to end my procrastination. I really don't have time for a trip, I trailed off. Melinda was hearing none of my protests. Go, Julia. Get some rest. See your old friends. You did have friends, right? I chuckled. Yes, even an antisocial rebel bitch like me has at least one friend that can handle her shenanigans. And I suppose it would be good to see my parents. As I spoke, I wondered if I really did have any friends left in Snohomish. As if confirming my suspicions, Melinda laughed. Hopefully they won't tar and feather you after the last book, she teased. The thought that retribution might be eminent had crossed my mind once or twice. Not a lot was flattering about the character portrayals I'd created in the last two novels I had written. I probably deserved whatever I had coming to me, though. I had made almost $2 million off those books so far and was living a comfortable life because of their success. Pushing the doubts to the back of my mind, I decided maybe Melinda was right for advocating a trip home. I'm sure no one there read either of my books, I assured her with a wicked grin. I'm not even sure anyone there can read. She snorted and handed me a paper airline ticket. Let's hope they can't, she chuckled. I glanced at the tickets and shook my head. She was the only person on the planet who refused to use the internet for anything other than work. 
Ever consider entering the 21st century, I asked her, you know, with ticketless travel and cell phone boarding passes? Shut up, Julia. Your flight leaves on Friday. The ticket is open, so take your time and get what you need to get resolved, resolved. Her eyes flashed, daring me to challenge her. She had nothing to worry about. I already knew she would not back down. That was how she had gotten to be one of the top agents in the country. Her comments about unresolved issues were a direct jab at something that had been eating at me for months now. I hadn't realized she was so perceptive. Really? Unresolved issues? I asked her sarcastically, attempting to divert her attention from my obvious need to work out some personal things. She sighed deeply. I have had over 200 clients through the years, and that list includes 27 best-selling authors that I have managed personally, she assured me. I know people, and my experience is unparalleled in the industry. I don't understand how you would be surprised that I can read you like a book. But unresolved issues, I persisted. Really? She snorted. Yes, Julia, you think you hide it well, and in spite of all the really unflattering things you said about the character Connor, I'm pretty sure he's patterned off of some cute little boyfriend you had when you were growing up. Damn, she was indeed perceptive. There was nothing more I could say to argue. Okay, Melinda, I'll take a trip home and see my family. As for the unresolved issues with an imaginary boyfriend, I can't guarantee anything on that one. I will take what I can get, and if it helps you get through your writer's block... It'll be worth every penny of that $700 plane ticket, she told me with a smile. Now get out. I gathered my belongings and headed for the door. Melinda was gruff and nosy and bossy, but she was honest and she genuinely cared about me and my career. I owed it to her and the $1 million bonus she would be getting to finish this project. I fully intended to do whatever I needed to do to make that happen. Opening her door, I headed out into the city to start the process of preparing for my first trip home in 20 years. Well, that is the end of today's podcast. Tune in next week to hear the next chapter in my novel, Returning to Snohomish. Thanks for listening. You can send us an email at the email address listed in the show notes or keep up to date with our social media on Twitter or Instagram at podcast.addict. If you know an author that would like to share their work or if you have feedback for any of our authors, please contact us at the email listed in our show notes. Good night, fiction fans. Stay smart, keep it real, and always support your local authors. Bye!